You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, we're underway. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Good, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. This is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv, and I'm with Daniel Bessemer, who's a professor at the uh, Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. He's a historian, uh, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit unusual here at The Glenn Show. In fact, instead of me interviewing Daniel, Daniel is going to interview me. It'll be clear why in due course, but uh, for some reason or another, he thinks I'm an interesting subject in the intellectual historical studies that he's engaged in. So I thought it might be entertaining for the audience of the Glenn Show to to, uh, hear me talk about myself with Daniel's prompting uh, and hear what Daniel has to say by way of uh, critical reaction. So Daniel, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Glenn. I just want to say, as I just said, I've been listening to you for a long time, and it's really an honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you about uh, these issues. Just to give people a bit of context of who I am, uh, I'm a historian of social science and a historian basically who explores um, intellectuals who wanted to have an effect on both public policy and public discourse. Uh, And of course, you yourself are are a major intellectual uh, in that regard over the last 30 or even 40 years 40 years at this point. Um, so uh, I thought it'd be interesting to interview about uh, interview you about that. So um, as historians do, we like to start at the beginning. Um, so you've mentioned a bit about your childhood on the years in Blogging Heads that you, you've been talking on, on Blogging Heads. And I was just wondering, um, I'm sure you're going to save a bunch of this for your memoir, but when did academia or at least intellectual life become a live possibility to you when you were a child? Well, I would say it probably didn't begin to congeal as a possibility for me until I was in college. Um, I I got a decent education in public schools in uh, Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. I graduated high school in 1965. But I never really thought of myself as an intellectual, and my horizons uh, in terms of academic pursuits were not were not very broad. There There weren't so many uh, influences of that sort in my life. People were practical. They were small business people. They were, uh, there were one or two professionals in the extended family tree, but uh, mostly people were, uh, you know, working class uh, men and women who were scraping out a living on the South side of Chicago. But when I came to Northwestern university in 1970, as an undergraduate, I transferred it's a long story. I'll talk about it in the memoir. But um, uh, I was a college dropout, and my girlfriend became pregnant, and we became a family. And I was working a job, and I decided to go back to college first at a community college, uh, where I was discovered by one of my teachers to have some talent. And he referred me to Northwestern University, which offered me a full scholarship to complete my undergraduate studies, uh, which I took up. Um, notwithstanding my family responsibilities and a full-time job that I had to hold down at night, I somehow managed to get my way through uh, two years of intensive uh, intellectual growth at Northwestern University. I was a math major, an economics minor. I took a lot of philosophy courses, a little bit of literature. Um, and it was there at Northwestern, especially on the technical side, when I my natural gifts of, of mathematical uh, ability got, uh, you know, really 
challenged and, and, and developed. And it, it was there when I started seeing a, a bigger picture, a world of ideas of books. You know, I could go on for a long time about this. I mean, hours in the stacks at the library when people went to libraries and sat in the stacks, pulling down journals from the shelf and just exploring different ideas and so forth. And I had the great good fortune of being uh, awarded a fellowship by the Ford Foundation to pursue doctoral studies. It allowed me, notwithstanding being a father of two children and a husband with, uh, you know, family responsibilities, to nevertheless think about pursuing a Ph.D. And um, I had some opportunities, including at MIT, uh, where I arrived in uh, the summer of 1972, uh, and began my doctoral studies. So I would say sometime between 1969 and 1971, a little light went on in my head and the possibility of doing something other than going to law school or getting an MBA or pursuing the management development track at the printing factory where I was working at night while uh, going to college. But there was a white collar kind of career track open to me in that company if I had chosen to pursue it. The idea of doing something other than that, of, you know, thinking and writing and studying for a living and teaching and lecturing, it began to come into focus for me. So one thing, let's step just a little back um, for a second, because of course you graduate from high school, you enter college, first community, then Northwestern at a time of like extraordinary social and political and intellectual ferments. You have the civil rights movements. You have the anti-Vietnam War protest movements. You have this burgeoning conservative reaction um, happening in places like California, which you may or may not have been aware of. So I was wondering, did you think at at this point that there was – did you have an interest in sort of shaping this public discourse? Or was it just, you know, you have two kids, you, you dropped out of college, you want to advance yourself in the world, you're choosing between being a manager and being an intellectual. They're very different things. So I was just wondering if there was something about the context of the times that pushed you in that particular direction, or particularly the context of, of, of Chicago, or where you were, a, a place of a, a enormous political uh, con- controversies and ferment, uh, particularly at that time, you know, the 68, you know, DNC <laughs> convention, you're there, you're in the city, maybe not there. So I was just wondering if there was a connection between that, because just uh, for people who are listening, when you enter these institutions, this is the great age of the intellectual and public life. You know, this is the best and the brightest in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. The Ford Foundation that funds you is headed by Mick George Bundy, you know, the the intellectual, qua intellectual at the time. So was there anything besides um, in your personal life that was happening around you that pushed you in this particular direction? Bundy had been, what, national security advisor to uh, Kennedy Johnson? Yeah, uh, no, gotta... the answer, it's a very good question, Daniel, because the, the perhaps surprising answer is no. I was a remarkably apolitical. I mean, after all, let's see, in 1967, when my uh, first uh, child, Lisa, was born, um, I was 18 years old. Uh, and I was, uh, I was at that time a student at the Illinois Institute of Technology, where I left without a degree. I left to go to work so that I could take care of my new responsibilities, but uh, it was, uh, you know, it was work. It was eight hours a day, five days a week. And if I got overtime, I was very glad to get it. Uh, Fortunately, there was a booming economy in the late 1960s, and it was really possible for someone who was basically a high school dropout to make what was a grown man's 
wage in those in those uh, years. And I was fortunate. Uh, the company where I went to work, R.R. Donnelly and Sons, a printing conglomerate. Uh, I'm sure they still exist, but they probably do all their work somewhere in South. Uh, East Asia, <laughs> because the the campus of printing plants, the factory village that existed on the lake shore of Chicago, just south of the Loop, is now all condominiums and uh, you know uh, high end uh, you know gentrified uh, living of uh, of six figure salary to people who want to be close to this to the lake and to downtown Chicago. So I didn't have time for politics. Uh, in the, I mean, of course, it was the 1960s, as you say. I, I just watched the movie Chicago, the Chicago 7 uh, movie, uh, which is pretty good. Uh, and I was reminded, I was reminded of taking my lunch break on the third shift at the printing plant, getting, you know, from three to four o'clock, getting in my car and driving down the Grant Park in August. I think it would have been August of, uh, of uh, 1968 and smelling the the reefer uh, and, and looking at sex drugs and rock and roll play itself out right before my very eyes as the flower children danced away their, uh, their angst and anxiety and rage, their rage at the machine, their rage at uh, Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey and all of that, Mayor uh, Richard Daly. And so I remember it vividly, but it was a distant thing. It wasn't, it wasn't my fight somehow. Of course, there was the racial uprising. There was Black Power. There was the Nation of Islam, very influential in Chicago. Uh, there was the the uh, specter and then the legacy of Malcolm X. There was uh, the Black Panther Party um, and so on. And, and of course, I was like anybody on the south side of Chicago in those years, uh, fiercely animated by a sense of outrage at race and racism and a sense of you know, the balled up fists and the desire to, to fight. But it didn't play out in my intellectual life very much at all. In fact, I can tell you a story. I won't go on long about this, but this is when I was at the community college. Uh, this would have been spring of 1970. You remember the strike? No, you don't remember the strike, but you, re- you know of the strike uh, because of the Cambodia incursion, you know, and, and uh, we had all gone on strike on these campuses. And I was at this community college, which meant, in um, a wing of a very large vocational high school, the Chicago Vocational High School, CVS, on the southeast side of the city, which had extra space. uh, And that space had been uh, appropriated by the community college as classroom space and office space to carry on its activities. So uh, I can remember banging on the door of the library with the librarian barricaded inside because there was so much ruckus because I wanted to get in to study for the calculus exam that I knew I was going to have to take at the end of the week. I was completely oblivious to what was, you know, going on around me because at um, uh, four o'clock I had to go home and try to get a few hours sleep before 11 PM having to get up and go to that factory where I was working and work all night before 7 AM getting up and coming back to study, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't have time for politics. Uh, so it wasn't that it's only years later uh, that I became aware of the thing that you're talking about, which are the the intellectuals who got drawn into uh, the large national debates that were going on, both about war and peace, uh, but also about domestic policy, you know, great society reforms and things like this. When I got to Harvard as a faculty member in the early 1980s and became very close to people like Thomas Schelling, got on the faculty of the Kennedy School of Government, you're now 15 years down the line, 
But the impetus to create the Kennedy School of Government, the modern Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, uh, came from uh, people like uh, Tom Schelling and, and, and Howard Rafa and Joseph Nye and, and uh, uh, people, I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of people that are, that should be mentioned, uh, Frederick Mosteller and, uh, and uh, others, uh, 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 the uh, uh, Al Carnesale, uh uh, and, and defense intellectuals. There were physicists around talking about nuclear exchange, strategic issues, and there were big domestic policy engineers around who were, you know, envisioning remaking that. So I became aware of this uh, uh, cadre of intellectuals, but I, I was not inspired by them. I, I didn't know very much about them when I was myself beginning to uh, enter into the academic life. So then this is one of the, the questions that kind of all intellectual historians ask of people after 1945, which is why, why the discipline you chose? Why economics? What appealed to you about economics as a, as a field or as a as – it's basically a field of inquiry? And we could talk um, a little bit or I'd like to hear your reflections on it because you're basically coming at the tail end of a transformation where economics becomes increasingly – mathematized or quantified and about models, right? There was other paths that were not taken of economics is more of an essay tradition. You have someone like Albert Hirschman still doing that a bit in the seventies and the eighties, but he's not the center of the field, never won a Nobel prize, right? It's Hayek actually who does win the Nobel prize. He's also an essayist, but so you, you have, um, you're at a very interesting sort of inflection point in the history of economics itself, which is now the, the, the avant-garde a hundred percent, in the early 1970s is going to be math. And I was just wondering what, did, what appealed to you about that or what appealed to you about the discipline itself? I'm almost ashamed to admit that it was the math. I mean, I was a math major. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. I was pretty good and uh, at the top of my class and all of my math teachers knew that uh, I was a black kid from the south side of Chicago who had to commute up to Northwestern every day, knew that I had a wife and two kids by this time knew that I was working eight hours a night at a, at a factory and stealing time away from uh, that job to study uh, my, you know, my uh, problem sets and all of that and thought I was an extraordinary talent. So they put me up uh, to take something called uh, the Putnam exam. Um, and the Putnam exam is a competitive uh, mathematics uh, uh, tournament, really, where, uh, I don't know, probably thousands sit, uh, all around the country uh, to answer a series of very difficult mathematical problems. And then the person who gets the most correct answers, I um, assume there's partial credit, uh, ends up being, or the top three or the top five ends up getting some prize and getting some national recognition. Uh, and and they, they trained me uh, by having me come around to office hours and work at the blackboard on simple problems to be ready to take the Putnam exam because they thought that I was one of the students at Northwestern in 1970, 71, who might have a chance to, you know, maybe get some of these 10 problems or 10 problems, maybe get some of them correct. Well, I sat for that exam. I got exactly zero correct answers. I couldn't answer a single one. I sat for three hours. It was the most humiliating and devastating experience of my life. I think the fellow who won that year got like six or five and a half correct out of the 10. Okay. I couldn't answer a single one of them. And it occurred to me, man, if you're going to make a career in academic mathematics, I don't know, because this is hard stuff. And these these people, they were all guys. They were almost all guys in 1970. These people are pretty damn good. I don't know if that's your calling. So I was I was wanting to do math. 
But thinking that as an academician, I probably didn't have the talent to succeed as a as a uh, academic mathematician. But I had to take a minor in the social sciences. There were still distribution requirements in those days. You know, you had to have a foreign language. I studied German. You had to take a distribution of humanities and social science and hard sciences and so forth and so on. I had satisfied my hard science requirement from the courses I took at, at Illinois Institute of Technology before I dropped out. But I had to take social science and economics was really quite natural. And Northwestern University in those years, in the years uh, 1970, 71, 72, and on through the 70s was a really extraordinary place for quantitative social scientific study. Uh, there are Nobel Prizes that have come out of the, the era of that era of Northwestern in economics. It was, it was a really remarkable thing. And I had some very talented teachers like uh, Dale Mortensen, who is a Nobel laureate, and John Ledyard, who's a very distinguished theoretical economist, uh, and others, Stanley Ryder, the Mass Center, the uh, Kellogg School for uh, Management at Northwestern was also very, very strong. Um, and I got exposed to uh, some of these courses. I had my mathematics, but I was fulfilling my minor requirement in the social sciences with economics. And I discovered Paul Samuelson's book, The Foundations of Economic Analysis. That's what our, I took the graduate sequence in economic theory when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern because that's the level at which I was functioning. And uh, they taught uh, Arthur Treadway and John Ledyard, I can remember, taught that one year uh, advanced course in economic theory, uh, basically from Samuelson's Foundations of Economic Analysis, which was still relatively fresh. I mean, it was 25 years old in 1970. So, um, I became aware of a differential calculus. I became aware of differential equations. I became aware of how you'd apply some functional analysis ideas. I became aware of how classical problems in economic theory, which had bedeviled scholars for centuries, were being formalized. I became aware of the work that people like Kenneth Arrow, uh, Gerard de Brew were doing in general equilibrium theory. I became aware of convex analysis. I became aware of the RAND Corporation, because there were all of these uh, dog-eared working papers that had been sitting in the, somebody's office stack that the professors would share with me, saying, "You ought to." I became aware of David Blackwell, the great statistician, uh, Berkeley statistician, African American, as it happens, David, who was also a part of this cadre of young, and in the late '40s, they were all young. Uh, path-breaking, linear programming, you know, uh, optimal control theory, stochastic optimal, con- you know, all of these techniques. And I fell in love with the techniques. It wasn't until later that I realized that the techniques could actually be used to study real questions, like questions of optimal economic growth and development or questions of the consequences of opening up free trade for relations between factor prices and final goods prices or, uh, you know, questions in consumer theory, questions about how macroeconomic policy affected people's, you know, interest in savings and investment theory, human capital theory, questions about inequality understood from a a formal uh, economic theoretic point of view, and that you could apply the math to these questions. And that did it for me. Once I found economics as a venue where you could be a serious mathematical analyst, but the subject of your inquiry was some of the essential questions of social organization and so on that had been confronted. Urban economics. Urban economics was being born in in these years and uh, spatial organization, you know, pricing, uh, central business district, you know, transportation issues. 
uh, a lot of stuff was going on that I thought was just, it was just perfect for me. It, it was gratifying to my mathematical orientation while allowing me to address myself to substantive questions. So when I got to MIT in 1972 as a graduate student, and I encountered people like uh, Paul Samuelson, who was writing a column for Newsweek in those years on a, uh, a monthly basis, I think. Robert Solo, who was deeply involved in uh, issues of, uh, you know, uh, how do you deal with unemployment and labor market issues and issues of economic growth. Um, I, I encountered Peter Diamond, who was a seemingly a pure theorist, but he was working on public and social insurance type issues, and he was doing it in a in a rigorous way. He was interested, Peter was, in those years. These are all Nobel laureates whom I'm referring to in law and economics uh, type questions. It was the early, early, early beginnings of applying formal economic analysis to legal questions uh, and so on. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was sold on this as a way of life uh, for an intellectual rigor, disciplined mathematical formal structure, but an invitation to engage with the most basic questions of social life and political life. I have a bunch of questions, but let me just ask one quickly. And this might be hard to articulate, it often is, but if you could try to put it into words, what, what did you find so beautiful or so compelling about providing formal analysis to sort of thorny social problems? Because as a historian of social science, you know, that's a, that's a choice to make, right? That the way to... Um, the way to approach social life is through formalization and quantification. And we might have disagreements about the utility of that given 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years on. But I was just, if you could try to articulate as someone who's like looking at this, a young kid from Chicago, what, what is so beautiful to you about that? Does it, does it make life legible in a way? Does it, you know, does it provide a, a guidebook for policymakers? It might be hard to articulate, but I'm trying, you see what I'm trying to get at. I do. You mentioned uh, Hayek. Uh, and one of our, and I can remember reading the road to serfdom when I was taking a philosophy course as an undergraduate. Um, and, and I can remember becoming aware of, uh, the Hayekian argument about information, about the decentralization of information. This, this is why do markets organize without there being any planner at the center of things, uh, social affairs, economic affairs in a way that, uh, we have reason to think is more or less efficient particularly as compared to the consequences of centrally directed resource allocation by a planner or a, a, commissar, a commissar or somebody at the, at the center of a, of a political bureaucracy. And the argument is about the, the fact that uh, information is local, that there are, you know, millions of moving parts in an economy and that individual, the, the farmer, the tradesman, the shopkeeper, the laborer, the manufacturer, the, uh, tra- the, uh, the, the fellow who's engaging in logistics and transportation, all of these different parts somehow have to fit together in a way that promotes efficiency. Well, what is efficiency? I mean, what do I mean by that? How, how would I represent that? Why do prices, although in an idealized way, because you're imagining perfect competition, you're having to make assumptions, the assumptions don't necessarily hold in the real world. This is an inescapable uh, part of doing anything formal in terms of an analysis. You have to reduce a infinitely complex reality to a set of manageable relationships that you can then sub- subject to quantitative study. But, but why does it work when it works? When, when markets work, why do they work? Um, and uh, I can remember the epiphany of seeing this 
Um, Paul Samuelson, a couple of years later, when I got to graduate school, put it this way. He says, two things kissing the same thing have to be kissing each other. He invites you to imagine a piece of paper, and he invites you to imagine a curve that's just gracing the piece of paper on one side and another curve that's just gracing that piece of paper on the other side. And if they're kissing the same thing at the same spot, they have to be kissing each other. Well, translation. One of those curves represents production possibilities that are feasible for the economy to, to, to produce. Another of those curves represents consumption uh, orientation. What are the bundles of goods that would make consumers better off? Efficiency is when it's not possible to get more of the things that make people better off, given what's feasible to produce. Prices are the piece of paper that is the hyperplane, we would say in technical language, separating production possibilities from bundles of outcomes that are uh, more desirable by consumers. Firms are trying to maximize their profits, and that's why the price plane is tangent to the production possibility set. Consumers are trying to maximize utility. That's why the upper contour set, as we would say, of bundles of of goods that are preferred is tangent to the same price line. At the same point, it's because we're in equilibrium and what's being produced has got to be balanced by what's being consumed, at least uh, over the longer run. And the, the theorem is that efficiency defined by not being able to get more out of consumption, given what's feasible to produce, is realized when producers try to maximize relative to the same prices that consumers are trying to, to uh, optimize. This is just... This is gorgeous. This is like wonderful. And I don't care that it's not absolutely a, a replica of, of uh, real world transactions. It's a close enough approximation to an idealized representation of those that you get profound insight out of that. Uh, uh, Charlie Koopmans, the, uh, another Nobel laureate, uh, another one of this generation of uh, scholars who were inventing uh, linear programming and convex analysis and applying it to economics, uh, he had a little book called Three Essays on the State of Economic Science. And it, what I just got through saying somewhat uh, clumsily, he reduces to the most beautiful, elegant, precise prose slash mathematical presentation I loved that book. I carried it around in my backpack for years because it, and I'm just giving one example of insights of that sort. So call it a fetish about a kind of formalism. Uh, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Karl Marx's engagement with, you know, uh, the great questions of political economy and power and exploitation and modernization and whatnot. No, it was historically sterile. You know, it, it didn't have texture. Uh, it, it wouldn't have satisfied a historian or a historically oriented sociologist or a political theorist or whatever. But there had to be a piece of the truth in there. And the thing was that you could see exactly why it was true. Uh, and, and I just found that overwhelmingly compelling. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's probably the big question of 20th century, second half of the 20th century social science is sort of its dehistoricization in a sense. And I think like there's going to be a lot of work in the next 10, 20 years examining that. So one thing that I want to get to, of course, is how do you see, uh, and then I, I want to get to MIT too. We've already been going for like a half hour. We've barely gone anywhere, but how do you see this sort of this burgeoning, um, your, your burgeoning interest in economics relating to your political development? Um, because these things, 
necessarily go together, I would say. And how would you say sort of your shift from what I've heard you describe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of like a typical left liberal in the 60s to someone who's going to be one of the major conservative intellectuals in the next 70, in, in the, in the, particularly in the 80s? How do you see this shift happening now when you look back on it? Well, yeah. I, I, when I was in graduate school, I thought of myself as, well, not a man of the left. I mean, I wasn't a member of the Union of Radical Political Economists. They call it URPE, U-R-P-E, Union Ra- you know, uh, with uh, my friend Sam Bowles, who was very uh, influential in those years, and Herb Gintis, and there were many others who were, were radical lefties uh, and serious economists who, de- who were trying to develop a a school of thought that that took Karl Marx's insights seriously and that didn't buy all of the Hayekian implications of modern economics. I wasn't there, but I was certainly a social Democrat. You know, I I mean, I I certainly would have been voting for Democratic candidates for uh, political offices, and I would have been thinking about uh, the great society as a great thing and uh, would have been thinking about the civil rights movement becoming institutionalized and laws against discrimination and whatnot as a very desirable thing. I uh, would have been anti-war. You know, I had the uh, then, of course, very widespread in the academy uh, view about the illegitimacy of activities in Vietnam. And in 1975, I can remember sitting in the faculty club. Uh, there was a conference and there was a social hour afterwards and some of the professors and they invited some of us graduate students to come up to the faculty club. And I can remember watching the news of the helicopter taking off from the roof of the embassy in Saigon and all that we had been, you know, flailing uh, about and against uh, for the preceding decade, it seemed to come to some kind of culmination of, I told you so, this was a fiasco. We never should have been in there in the first place. And that would have been my sensibility. But the one thing that I was, was I was what we would today call a neoliberal. I mean, that is to say, I believed in markets. Uh, that, that is to say, I believed in incentives. Um, I was skeptical about planning. I've already gestured at Hayek. Uh, I didn't regard that as a right-wing position. I regarded it as an enlightened position. I thought not a, not a, not a fetish about free trade, but I thought that basically the idea that we would open markets and allow goods to move across borders needed to be uh, seen in light of the negative consequences that could have some people and they should be compensated but the shutdown trade result was a, was the road to serfdom. It was a road to impoverishing ourselves. Um, I was skeptical about unions. I can remember my first uh, job at Northwestern University as an assistant professor. And a few years later, I moved to the University of Michigan. This would have now be 1979, 1980. And, um, you know, the auto industry was in trouble. Rubber and steel and glass were in trouble. Foreign competition from the Japanese and the Europeans was uh, coming online. Um, and there was just a lot of uh, labor management uh, tension and whatnot. And my instinct was to think about feather bedding, to think about, you know, uh, make work, was to always see the inefficient side of the union demand. I, not like I had anything against the working man, but, but I thought that the, 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 the big labor uh, view about organizing economic activity was, again, a, a, a kind of, slow road to serfdom. I wanted to open things up. Take care of people who are going to be hurt as any decent society should do, but let prices, incentives, markets uh, drive the action. So by the time you get to 1980, 
Um, and there's all this ferment going on on the right. Uh, there are people like David Stockman. No one will remember who he is now, but he was a congressman from Michigan, and then he became the budget director for Ronald Reagan in his first term, infamously so because he was uh, a good uh, accountant of the federal fisc and realized that Reagan's tax cuts plus defense buildup were going to imply red ink forever and that that was not a healthy state for the economy. And he said so initially in private, what he thought were going to be private meetings with somebody writing for the Atlantic or the New York or something like that, but it ended up being a big expose. And, uh, you know, but, but David Stockman, Jack Kemp, another young congressman from New York uh, at that time, the late Jack Kemp, um, but uh, Jude Waniski. George Gilder, I don't know if these names mean anything to you, Danny, but these were, these were, you know, quirky, uh, 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 the, the Laffer curve, Arthur Laffer, these were, these were quirky, uh, Paul Krugman would say they, they had their heads up their butts, you know. Uh, I think they were on to something, although, you know, it was simplified and over, I mean, it, they were on to, uh, this idea that, you know, incentives matter, that you had to really think about prices that, you know, uh, uh, Anyway, they they were they were young Reaganite uh, social critics, and I read them. I didn't agree with them at first, but I found them interesting. A lot more interesting than a lot of stuff that I was hearing. The stale stuff that I was hearing from the conventional left. I I, I got uh, to some degree evangelized or you know uh, converted uh, by some of this stuff, um, and at the same time I was watching. Uh, black Detroit, you know, uh, sort of slip further and further into a hole. Um, I was disillusioned uh, by the rhetoric of the civil rights movement about racial issues. I, those were issues that were always important to me. Um, they were not a part of my work so much in the 1970s, but they came to be a part of my work. Um, and so it was a combination of things. But uh, largely, I think the consequence of my training in economics uh, in the early part of my career was to make me much friendlier to market-oriented ways of analyzing social problems and much more skeptical about the, the kind of utopian, uh, all we need to do is get control of the, of the political apparatus and we'll be able to fix things uh, view of the world. It's very interesting because, as you are well aware, the historian critique of, like, the early neoliberalism is is just as utopian but in a different way, that it's, you know, it's replacing the planner with the market in a sense. And it's interesting that you use a lot of religious language, believe, conversion, to describe your shift. And I I think that's true for most social scientists. I mean, going back to Weber, it's kind of like an ex nihilo thing. You know, what attracts you is, is, is so um, difficult to um, put your finger on. But I actually want to get back to MIT for a second because there's something that, you know, shock among shocks. I'm a Jewish academic, so I, I always, you know, um, oftentimes over the years you've mentioned, you know, the, these great Jewish intellectuals who trained you. And I want to know if you could just talk about that a bit. So let me just, like, like historically, you know, Solo is, you know, comes from a similar working class background. I imagine Samuelson does as well. I imagine almost all of these guys do as well. So they're at the height of their career. They're 40, they're 50. I mean, Solo, I think, was only actually, he was 50. Um, he, so 50 in the 70s when you get there. Um, and they're now they're training a young black kid from the south side of Chicago. So I was just wondering, like, 
what role do these like Jewish figures play? Because they seem to play just things I've picked up over the years, a pretty big role in your imagination of what like a good intellectual is, of what a great intellectual is. So much to the point where you oftentimes when you're criticizing black culture, you implicitly or explicitly compare it to like Jewish culture uh, in a sense that like Jewish Jews do this and, and we don't do this. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Jew from South Brooklyn. I, I get it. You know, there is an emphasis on learning, blah, blah, blah. But I would, they, they, they seem to occupy a very central place in your imagination. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, I mean, first of all, everybody was Jewish. <laughs> I know, it's true. I mean, they really are. Let me just run down the list. Franco Modigliani, the great Italian uh, macroeconomist, monetary economist, Jewish. Robert Solo, the great uh, economic, applied economic theorists and growth theorists was Jewish. Paul Samuelson, the great, you know, sort of father of modern math, uh, math oriented economics. Peter Diamond, who was young in uh, the early 1970s, uh, uh, was Jewish. Uh, Richard Eckhaus, who was a development economist, not of the same degree of distinction as those who I've just mentioned, but he was a professor at MIT in those years. Uh, was Jewish. Peter Timmon, the economic historian, was Jewish. Stanley Fisher, uh, the uh, head of the IMF economic analysis and uh, uh, governor of the Bank of Israel in the later part of his career, but I can remember him running around with his shirt sleeves rolled up, a very energetic, young, brilliant monetary economist, uh, was Jewish. Franklin Fisher, the uh, great uh, econometrician who ended up uh, representing IBM in its uh, big uh, antitrust lawsuit as an analytical expert uh, against the U.S. Justice Department was Jewish. I haven't even really gotten started. Everybody was Jewish. Yeah, okay. I mean, almost literally, almost literally, it was true. MIT's ethos Im- implicitly embodied Jewish aspiration because the the department came into existence. Because the anti-Semites at Harvard refused to acknowledge Paul Samuelson's uh, visionary, uh, profound, and revolutionary genius. They, they, they wouldn't credit him with the chair that he had earned by 1945 uh, in economics. He was along with Sir John Hicks in Britain and, you know, a few others, uh, among the top five economists on the planet. Uh, and he couldn't get a chair at Harvard, and he moved down the river to MIT uh, which was a bunch of Quonset huts uh, in uh, the late 1940s. And he started a department. Um, and by the time you come along, and it's only 20 years later, it's the greatest department in the world. And it was not officially, but informally, it was a very Jewish environment. Not that people were wearing yarmulkes or they were saying prayers or requiring anything like that. It, it just was in the air. I mean, it was, you know. Now, in some of these people were quite aware of their Jewishness and quite aware of my blackness. Uh, they, they were all progressives uh, of some stripe or another using modern day language. They all wanted to make the world a better place. They all believed in the power of the government to do so, notwithstanding a commitment to rigorous economic principle and uh, a kind of recognition of, you know, the limits and the constraints uh, and the prices. Um, uh, they they were keenly aware of the of the urban crisis. What in those years would have been called the urban crisis, of uh, the, the of the uh, unfulfilled aspiration of African Americans to a seat at the table. MIT in 1970 started an affirmative action program in its PhD program. They had roughly 25 new students coming in a year. You have to understand again. 
This is the best department on the planet. Of course, they would argue with you at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Berkeley, but they would have been wrong. They, they, I mean, I'm, I'm prepared to defend this claim that in 1970, MIT was the best economics department in the planet. And they brought in 25 or so students every year into the PhD program. It was hard to get in, very hard to get in. And they made the commitment to setting aside three of those positions of the 25 new students every year for African-American applicants. And for a period of time, it was an experiment. The experiment didn't continue through the late 70s, but it went on probably for six, seven, eight years. It was, you could argue about how successful it was. Some kids completed and are distinguished economists to this day. I won't embarrass them by naming people, but others didn't, you know, complete and were probably a bit over their heads at MIT. It was a very, very tough place to be in terms of the competition in the classroom because these are the best people on the planet uh, who had come there to study. Um, but um, they instituted an affirmative. This is way before anybody was going around mandating the Baki, the Baki case, the kind of, you know, watershed affirmative action uh, legal cases in the late 1970s. This is 1970 when they're doing this. Um, Bob Solo, uh, who was a uh, towering figure in the theory of economic growth, uh, decided to devote himself to urban economic study for years. He was writing uh, papers. Uh, I don't think many of them are well remembered now, uh, in which he took the uh, beauty of this uh, optimal control theory, this dynamic uh, uh, optimal uh, control theory, and he applied it to the organization of economic activity in space. There was a kind of, you know, isomorphism between T representing the date at which an action was taking place to T representing how far you were from the central business district so that you could, uh, you know, formalize the trade-offs between uh, taking on economic activity here versus there in terms of the same mathematical language that they had been using to formalize the trade-off between making investments and enhanced uh, productive facilities now rather than later. Um, but but he, he turned his attention to... Uh, uh, to those issues. And uh, there were a hundred things that he could have been uh, working on besides. Um, uh, I can remember being taken aside and counseled by some of my teachers about what it meant uh, to be an African-American uh, with, with talent, uh, you know, functioning at, at the top of my class. If I can say this, I, I did all right at MIT. I, I, I was very, uh, well-trained there, and I, and I performed very well there, and people recognized it. And the burdens that I would carry as an African-American, because I would be expected to address myself to a broader range of questions than simply the I-dotting and T-crossing, um, you know, the epsilons and deltas and the limits as T goes to infinity and the, you know, uh, convex analysis kind of uh, manipulations. I would be expected to address myself to poverty. I'd be expected to talk about discrimination and racism. I'd be expected to evaluate. And invitations started coming to get involved in these activities even before I completed my dissertation. Um, so uh, when I chose as the topic of my dissertation that I wanted to study the dynamics of racial inequality across generations and in the long run, and I could go into details if you ask me about it, but that's not the main point here. I was encouraged by people. No one came to me and said, uh, that's, uh, you know, who's going to be interested in that topic. 
um, they, they wanted to make sure that I was maintaining standards of rigor and that I wasn't lapsing into a kind of propagandistic, um, you know, tendentious thing. There were high standards for economic uh, analysis, but the, the subject matter, it was welcomed. Um, and I can remember being taken aside by a couple of uh, more senior graduate students um, who were, uh, 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 who, I, who I met, I met the first year that I came into the program. Uh, and again, uh, these are Jewish guys, as it happened, Steve Chevelle and Meyer Cohn. Meyer was an Israeli. Steve is an American Jew from New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they said, they, they told me, do you know who David Blackwell is? And as it happened, I did know who David Blackwell was. Uh, he's a black guy who's a, a mathematical statistician, and he's made these fundamental contributions to the theory of dynamic programming and to the, the theory of uh, statistical decision theory and whatnot. And they said, be like him. Don't be a this These were colleagues, students, fellow students, counseling me, a newcomer. Don't fall into the professional black you know, kind of posture. Don't, don't, you know, stick to your knitting. Uh, master the techniques and be a scientist. And then you will have demonstrated that there can be black scientists who can operate just as David Blackwell is operating at the very highest level. Um, I had mixed feelings about that advice, to be honest with you. Uh, it was well intended. Um, I kind of followed it for a decade, but I didn't stick with it. I, I, I became uh, a more political and social critical oriented uh, intellectual. But um, uh, am I answering you? I don't know if I'm answering you or not. It was a very Jewish department. Uh, the, the ethos of commitment to social justice that one associates with uh, liberal Jews was very much present. Um, the interest in me as an African-American, talented, young economist in the making, uh, I think, resonated with many of my teachers in part because of their uh, Jewish commitments, although it did so in a way that would always have them affirming for me the importance of rigor and seriousness of your, of, of your analysis. No, no, you did answer my question in part, I guess just to, to put it, you know, to just ask it very starkly, did there, was there something about like quote unquote Jewish culture that appealed to you? Because I did hear you over the years. I didn't answer that part of your question. I, I talked That's about the Jewishness of the institution and, and how that affected the institution and affected me. But I didn't talk about my reaction to the Jewishness of the institution. Um, I loved that Samuelson story. I mean, to me, that Samuelson story is exactly what Malcolm X would have wanted. It, I don't know if anybody understands what I'm talking about here. Malcolm X would have said, don't be standing around waiting for the white man to save you. He's not coming, okay? And if he comes... He's only coming to patronize you and pat you on the head. Get busy building your life. Build your community. Start a business. Educate your children. Clean up your act. Stand up straight. This is Malcolm X. He's also got his fist balled up like this, and he's not taking anything from racism and the ballot or the bullet and all of that. But Malcolm X was very much about, will you please get it done? Do you think these people actually care about you? Paul Samuelson's reaction to anti-Semitism at Harvard, which was to put his head down and write another five foundational papers on the transfer problem or on the factor price equalization or on um, uh, public goods economics or on um, uh, one of my favorites is, um, uh, what does he call it? Uh, 
the this is uh, with or without the social contrivance of money. This is his uh, his paper on overlapping generations. I'm sorry, I don't remember the title of the paper, but it'd be very easy to look up. Jerome, Political Economy, 1958. Uh, uh, his paper on the uh, theory of interest that introduces a, a, a profound conceptual device, the overlapping generations model where people are dependent for their consumption possibilities today on decisions that are being made in anticipation of what's going to be available tomorrow in a infinitely, uh, there's no terminal date. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I wish I could remember the name of this paper, but in any case, Paul Samuelson's answer to anti-Semitism was to change the field with his, with his head. Um, uh, every one of those people that I can remember now whom I've named, who I encountered when I was in graduate school, however Jewish they might have been, uh, were uh, determining their own fate by the, 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 the weight of what it is that they, they brought to the table of, of their hard work, of their, of their commitment to their craft, of, of their discipline, uh, of their depth, of their seriousness of, of mind, um, and, and so on. And, and I thought if you're going to be an underdog, I mean, I didn't know chapter and verse and every detail about what happened in Germany between 1933 and 1935, but I knew enough. Nothing I, I, I knew enough to know that this was, you know, you think the world is dealing you a bad hand, you know, the world doesn't have to be your friend. On the other hand, your fate does lie to a substantial degree within your own hands. And yes, I did associate that with Jewishness somehow, and perhaps this is my error, um, but um, such was my social conditioning and, and my placement and the influences on me that um, I came to look upon uh, Jewish academic success as a model and uh, Jewish response to oppression and, and uh, uh, disaster uh, uh, as something that had much to commend it. And it's very unfair, I should think, to say, be like the Jews, to say that to anybody. Because groups of people can't simply be like one thing or the other. That's a kind of trivial uh, trivialization. Um, but there's nothing wrong with being inspired by the Jews. And I was. Uh, that's really interesting. And, and, confirms kind of what I was thinking based on m remarks you've made over the years. Another thing that I want to ask you about is meritocracy, particularly in light of your recent discussion with Markovitz, whose book I actually reviewed for the nation. Um, and, I, you know, I'm a classic millennial, find the concept quite wanting <laughs> today in light of uh, recent developments. But I was wondering um, if at the time, you know, rising to this position in MIT, how that shaped your, your worldview on, on meritocracy and basically the question, the foundational question of democracy, which is like, who should make decisions and who should govern and what was going on as you're like uh, maturing intellectually in the 1970s? Meritocracy. Um, and all these years blur together. I mean, this is a half century that we're talking about. <laughs> Um, you know, affirmative action was a, was really not even fully developed as a kind of institutionalized practice uh, when I started at MIT as a graduate student. Uh, and uh, by the time you get to 
the turn of the 21st century. It's, it's a, it's a dug in reflexive institutional reaction to the uh, relative paucity of uh, black faces in various venues, Silicon Valley, Caltech, um, whatever it might be, um, venture capital, uh, whatever. Um, I was, I was, influenced by a lot of different things uh, going on in the 70s. One of them was the the radical uh, uh, economists. I took them seriously. I didn't follow them, but I took them seriously. Uh, Bowles and Gintis had a book called Schooling in Capitalist America, which had a big influence on me. And it, 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 uh, uh, I read it carefully, and uh, it, it did change somewhat the line of argument that I made in my dissertation. I didn't follow them. But I was influenced by them. And, you know, this was an understanding of the fact that the institutions of education were socially situated and that they would, to some degree, be in the business of reproducing structures of hierarchy within the society by, in effect, teaching people their place. So that working class kids would not be imbued with the same sense of agency and control over their fate and would be made well suited for their, you know, work, worker bee um, uh, uh, futures, uh, which the, the system had in, in store for them. Uh, I took, I took that somewhat seriously. I mean, I, my ideas today about race and race, racism were, are very much different than, uh, I was much, much more conventional. I would have thought that, uh, of course I was going to be looked askance at as a black person practicing in a field. There, there were very few blacks. I might've had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, uh, about that. Uh, I can remember in my dissertation, I have a line where I'm dismissive of neoclassical economics as, uh, you know, I had introduced my own new idea. And I say, of course, neoclassical economists like the Chicago School, Gary Becker, Jacob Mincer, uh, those people will not get this because they're dug in the wool and dug in. And uh, recently, maybe five years ago, I was interviewed by uh, somebody at the magazine for the Minneapolis Fed. Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank has a magazine called Regions. And they do profiles of economists. And I was the subject of a cover story for the magazine maybe five years ago. And this uh, intrepid reporter who was really very well informed had dug out my dissertation, found this line where I was dismissive of neoclassical economics, threw it up in my face and asked me, well, Professor Lowry, uh, what were you, what, what did you mean when you gave the back of your hand to neoclassical? Of course, neoclassical economics won't understand whatever. And I had to confess that it was a pose. That, that I that I had to take a smack at neoclassical economics in order to feel good about myself as a black person. I had not yet drunk the Kool-Aid. I had not completely, of course, my more radical African-American colleagues in grad school at that time thought for sure that I had drunk the Kool-Aid because I was always up there in the front of the class raising my hand trying to get the mathematical thing correct. And I was very seldom to be found at the study group that was reading Franz Fanon. I, I mean, Franz Fanon, a great man, but I, in, in 1973, I didn't have any time for France for not. I was too busy trying to figure out what Kenneth Arrow was talking about. So they would have said, uh, you know, that I wasn't a particularly black economist, but I was thinking to myself that you asked me about meritocracy. And what I'm saying is I came along at a time when I would have been very suspicious of the claim that all you have to do is be good enough and everything's going to be okay. Uh, on the other hand, um, I saw a lot of wheat getting separated from the, the chaff at, at MIT. I saw a lot of cream rising to the top, whatever your metaphor is. Um, the difference between 
getting that paper into Econometrica and not getting that paper into Econometrica is not about whether or not the editor is your buddy. It, it's about whether or not the anonymous referees who have spent maybe uh, a day, a full day on your paper trying to uh, digest what it is that you have done and who are intimately familiar, not just with the literature in print, but with work that's ongoing in the various labs and, and research centers around the world, think that your idea adds value to the corpus of what it is that's known about the critical subject. Now, if that's not meritocracy, I don't know what is. Uh, these are not popularity contests. Uh, these are not fad and fashion, although there is that phenomenon from time to time, certain modes of inquiry or sets of questions will be more or less fashionable than others. And uh, there'll be a kind of uh, flocking of uh, people at the journals to publishing papers along those lines. But it, but it's mainly about, I think, I thought then, and I think now it's mainly about how good are you at this craft, at this rarefied, intellectually uh, challenging, difficult, subtle craft of, of formal analysis of, of social interaction, game theory, information economics. Uh, you know, it, it's about that. And if you're good at it, the cream will rise to the top. If, if you're able to do it, the wheat will be separated from the chaff. Uh, and if you're not getting your paper in the journal, well, it's not because you're black. Uh, it's because you haven't written the paper that people, and who, who else will you turn to except your peers think, uh, add sufficient value to uh, the corpus of what's what's known and being asked about the questions at issue. So I became a believer in the power of uh, mastery, of the mastery of your craft. And I guess that makes me a meritocratic, um, you know, and if you saw my conversation, made me a believer in meritocracy. And if you saw my conversation with Daniel Markowitz, I, I was pushing back constantly uh, with him about, uh, you, you know, uh, you're telling me it doesn't matter what doctor performs open heart surgery on me. It doesn't matter what school that he or she went to and how many fellowships that they hold and what their peers think about their professional uh, acumen. You, you, you're telling me I want my case, the case where my company rises or falls based on this lawsuit to be handled by, oh, it doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter whether they were trained at Harvard or at the Yale Law School or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, come on, I know it. I know that that does Matter. I know society has an interest in cultivating uh, this kind of excellence, and I know that a recognition of that excellence within the structures of reward is essential to creating the incentives, the incentives that brings that brings it forward uh, to maximal effect. Um, not that Daniel Markowitz doesn't have a lot of really interesting things to say in that book. I, I admire him and the book, but um, yeah, I became a believer in meritocracy, and people are going to say. Well, yeah, because you're up there in the front of the class answering the questions. Of course, you believe in meritocracy. Suppose somebody didn't have your particular gift at that particular activity. And my answer would be they probably ought to find something else to do. <laughs> yeah, or, or that the meritocrat functions within a particular system. Um, and then if the systemic critique uh, is what you want to go for, then having the best technocrat within that system isn't necessarily the highest ideal that one would want to strive for, or one can point to the failures of the meritocrats. That's what I prefer to do, uh, particularly in my own realm of foreign policy analysis. I mean, you couldn't get more failures than American foreign policy over the last 60 or 70 years, but it is very interesting because I think it, at the time you're coming up, it becomes like the governing logic or the justifying logic. And it's actually a liberatory logic, I think, in its 
uh, initial initial phase. It allows Jews particularly into places and then members from other groups, particularly women uh, and black and uh, other Americans into institutions. Asians? Asians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Asians. Uh, lots of different ones. And as you know, the Harvard case going on right now, for sure. Um, it's, it's an interesting, I think there's benefits and drawbacks as there is to everything. Um, but We've been going a while. Do you want me to continue to ask? We barely got out of the mid-70s. Okay, why don't we give ourselves another, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes? Sure. No, that's great. So now this is the big question that the intellectual historian loves asking. What was the dissertation? Why did you choose it? And how did it shape the next 50 years of your life? (laughs) (laughs) We've only got 15 minutes. Okay. So my dissertation was called Essays in the Theory of the Distribution of Income, and there were two papers. I had written other papers in graduate school that ended up getting published, but they were on other topics, and I kept them out of my dissertation. The model of a set of essays, which were two or three or four pieces of work that could be submitted to a journal uh, and that taken together constituted the the dissertation, was well-established in economics at that time. So it was not a sustained argument on one question. It was a set of investigations of related questions. In my case, there were two essays on the theory of the distribution, in the theory of the distribution of income. Uh, One was called Intergenerational Transfers and the Distribution of Income. And it was not about race. It was about inequality. And it was about the fact that developing young people depend in part upon resources transferred to them by their parent, not only bequest, financial resources, but human developmental resources, the investments in the quality of their education and the experiences that abet their acquisition of skill, which would not be equalized across families because families were not equally placed in the distribution themselves. And rich parents were always going to be better able to af- provide their kids with uh, resources than would poor families be able to do, even though the kid in a rich family might not be more talented than the kid in a poor family. And the idea that uh, the the diminishing returns idea, basic economic idea that um, you get less for each additional unit of the input, uh, you get less output, suggested that wealthy parents were probably from an economic point of view over-investing in their children relative to poor parents in the sense that if a unit of investment in the wealthy parent's kid could be transferred to the poor kid, the loss from the wealthy parent because of diminishing returns kid would be less than the gain from the poor kid. You would expect capital markets to solve this problem where there's an investment opportunity here, enhance the future productivity of a kid who's in a poor family by making resources available now and you'll get a higher return on that than you would by putting those same resources into your own kid who already has got so much being invested in him, the marginal return is less. There ought to be a market to allow that transaction to take place, but that market wouldn't exist. These were the early days of the field of information economics, adverse selection, and so on. That market wouldn't exist because of, of obvious contract problems. You can't enforce the contracts that require the kid of a parent to repay a loan on, undertaken on their behalf. And there's also incentive problems because uh, income insurance and so, things like this. So, so there's an economic resource allocation problem of a first order implied by the fact that human development depends upon family-specific research, resource transfers that are constrained by the availability of money to the parent. 
Inequality today is related to inequality in the next generation via this mechanism. I found a way of taking the theory of stochastic economic growth, which I won't try to describe, but it's basically a dynamic formalization of the optimal accumulation of capital under conditions of uncertainty, and applying it to this situation where parents in the current generation would be uncertain about how able, how uh, gifted their children would be, but would nevertheless have to make investment decisions in their children. And I use that framework to study the movement from one generation to the next of the distribution of income. Now, my point here was to basically highlight the distinction between the dynamic process of mobility from one generation to the next and the static outcome of a steady state of inequality. The dynamic process would eventually converge, I proved, to a steady state. But policy intervention that affected the dynamic process might have unexpected consequences for the steady state. And I, and I wanted to make the point in this essay, essays in the theory of the distribution of income is the thesis, um, intergenerational transfers and the distribution of income is the paper that I'm describing. I wanted to make the point that the classical trade-off between equity and efficiency falls apart in the world that I'm describing. That classical trade-off says you may not like there being so much inequality, but if you try to do anything about it, you're going to reduce the size of the pie because you're going to have to use instruments of intervention like taxation that distort the prices and cause there to be a wedge between uh, price on one side or the other of the market and the labor market. The return to the worker is less than the value to the employer by the amount of the wedge, which is the tax on the worker's wage. You're going to tax Arthur Oaken, the great late economist, Arthur Oaken called it the leaky bucket. I'm trying to move the water from the well, which has a lot of water in it, to the well that has very little. But as I go across the field with my bucket, some of the water leaks out. That's the efficiency cost of redistribution. And the classic paradigm in thinking about economic redistribution involves a trade-off between equity and efficiency. But I was trying to make the point that that trade-off doesn't necessarily apply once you take into account the market imperfections that inhibit the ability of resources to be transferred from rich to poor families to facilitate the development of the children in poor families. So that was that paper. It was Wait, published let, me, let me quickly clarify. So that's a, that's an argument in favor of some form of redistribution. Yes. It's an argument right, right. very much in favor of some form of redistribution. And I go through in the applied part of this theoretical paper, a number of different policies that are that uh, shown to, redistributive policies that are shown to both increase the size of the pie and reduce the inequality of the steady state distribution of income, thereby illustrating my point that they're not necessarily in conflict in a world without perfect markets. So, so that was, that was uh, one paper, but the other paper, and, the, and I wanted to say it was published in uh, 1981 in Econometrica. Uh, you know, so that was, that was a great paper. Uh, it's still cited. It's still cited. It's got maybe 2,000 citations. Uh, in the, wow. Uh, um, the other paper in my dissertation uh, was called um, A Dynamic Theory of Racial Income Differences. And there it was also the same kind of formalism, although the particular math was a little different. I wasn't using, you know, continuous time. Uh, state, discrete time, Markov chain type analysis. I, was, I, I had simplified the problem. Uh, but um, the, the question that I was asking was, 
suppose you have a history of discrimination against a racial group and miracle of all miracles, it comes to an end. The discrimination comes to an end and the society reforms itself and it stops discriminating. So discrimination is you don't pay the worker what they're worth because of the worker's race. You pay blacks less. So blacks have less. They have less assets. They have less uh, resource development and so forth. So they're poor. Their occupational profile looks less attractive. They're poor. They're poorer. So they start behind. If you have a nice structure with nice, smooth, diminishing returns and everything's nice and convex and everything, where you might expect convergence, right? If two countries start behind, but they have the same technology that's available, eventually, it might take a while, you would expect convergence. This is another implication of diminishing returns. The poor countries with lower capital stocks are going to have a higher rate of return on capital than the rich countries. Money should move over the long term from rich to poor. They should converge asymptotically. What about groups? Will the blacks catch up if you stop discriminating against them, given that the world is nice in terms of the technological um, possibilities? Um, And I said, well, uh, let's distinguish between a world in which everything that is relevant to productivity is tradable. So everything that's relevant to productivity, I mean now the development of productive worker. So I mean education, I mean home influence, I, I mean nutrition, I mean a lot of stuff. But it's all available to be purchased on the market at the common prices because there's no discrimination. And I show in my model that, yes, the group that's behind will catch up if everything's uh, that's important to human development is tradable. But I said, however, let's consider a world in which some of the resources that influence human development are not tradable, that they get available, they become available to people only because of their social connections. So the influence of peer groups, I live in a neighborhood, there are other people like me and live in that neighborhood. They have things they like to do, things that they think are great. They have aspirations, dreams, hopes, they have heroes, they have villains, uh, they have values, they, you know, they have uh, a culture, uh, particular to this network of association of individuals. That's not tradable, at least not in any easily uh, imaginable way. Suppose non-traded factors that enhance individual productivity are important, and suppose they tend to be communicated between individuals based on social connectivity, and suppose social connectivity is not free of racial bias, even though economic activity is free of racial bias. Should I still expect convergence? Well, no. the answer I say is no. Right. And the and conclusion, this, the conclusion I draw from this analysis is that equal opportunity will not be enough. That is, stopping discrimination as long in the economic sphere will not be enough to generate equality, even asymptotically, even in the very, very longest of run, so long as social connectivity continues to be influenced by race and so long as social connectivity is important in terms of the external effects that go on within social networks to accounting for individual acquisition of skill. So equal opportunity. So this made me <coughs> an advocate of affirmative action. And I was an advocate of affirmative action coming out of my district. Uh, laissez-faire cannot be relied upon to ensure, even in a world where legal discrimination has been eliminated, that the consequences of historical discrimination would attenuate 
and asymptotically go down to zero. Those consequences could stay around forever if social segregation was important, even if economic discrimination was ended. Now, the reason I thought that this was important was because social segregation, unlike economic discrimination, is difficult to fully regulate by government fiat. I can tell an employer that if I catch you not paying what this worker is worth, you're going to court and it's going to cost you plenty. And the employer will have an incentive to not discriminate. But I can't really tell people who to marry. I can't tell them whether or not to stay in a neighborhood or to move away. I can't tell them whom to befriend, whom to invite to their dinner parties, whom to go into business with. I I, I can't, without violating the autonomy of individuals, which is an essential prerequisite to a free society, I can't fully control as as a regulator the social connectivity of people. There's a limit beyond which one won't go because to go beyond that limit is to have a one-child policy like in China or to move people around en masse so as to create ideal communities of a demographic composition of the planner's desire, which or might busing. Be- or busing. Well, yeah, so busing is, is, is in that space, and you saw what happened with busing. Yeah. I mean, well, it's it also when you're writing this, you know, and were you influenced by the culture of poverty debates at not, all? Of not like, much, I'm- a little bit. And I was definitely a lefty on the culture. The Moynihan, Banfield culture, that was my sneering sentence. We do not here entertain the Moynihan, Ban- you know, this, this could be a quote from the dissertation. I dismissed them peremptorily. There were no differences between black and white family life that I was prepared to take seriously. There were only resources. Some of those resources communicated by social connection, others communicated through the buying and selling of commodities in the marketplace. But I didn't, it was only later, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s that I came to start taking some of that stuff very seriously. But those were, that was my dissertation. Essays on the theories of, and and by the way, the dynamic theory on racial income differences paper is also still cited today, 44 years after I put that dissertation in uh, to Bob Solo at MIT in 1976. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, and you could also really see a lot of your intellectual interests already there, you know, and you could see like the various ways that you would, that you might go in in particular directions. Um, But uh, I'd like to do this again, if you would be, be willing, we we could go into the eighties because I think right now we have you in this sort of mid, mid to late seventies, you know, of a particular political ideological intellectual constellation and there are shifts that happen in the next two decades uh, that I'd love to, I'd love to explore at length, you know, the Reagan eighties and how that shifted. You're coming online as sort of this like hot young intellectual having articles written about you. It's very interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, we've only just gotten started with the story here. Uh, We're at 1980 or so, 1976. So uh, let's give it a, a, a couple of months or something like that. Uh, can you can you live with that? No, I mean, of course. Or we can talk and put the put the conversation up at any time. I like to space this out a little bit too much of me, 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 me. Uh, I'm posting every week here at the Glenn Show a new episode, and every other week that episode is with my conversation partner John McWhorter of Columbia University, yep. as Daniel knows well because he follows the Glenn Show. But this week it's been my pleasure to be able to expound about myself uh, with the uh, able prompting of Daniel Bessemer, who's a professor in the School of International Studies at the University of Washington. 
So uh, thanks, uh, Daniel. And yes, let's do it again uh, in a bit. Yeah, let's do it again. Thanks so much for having me, everyone. Really appreciate it. You're welcome.